We're told it's a small world. I suppose at times it can certainly seem so, particularly in this golden age of communication. We always know where we are, and if we don't, uh, we can always hit a button on our phone to let us know. It should be very hard to get lost these days. But we all know it isn't. And we all know it was even worse about a century ago. When a tragedy occurs, when people die, there is this horrible grief that those left behind have to learn to live with. But there's also a finality to the event, a conclusion, which, while it might not lessen the pain, it helps to at least explain it. But when something or someone goes missing, that sparks a period of mourning that can never fully be reconciled. And in their absence, they leave nothing more than painful questions that will hang like tangible things above those left behind, whose only duty now is to wait for an answer that will never come. And when a loss is large enough and strange enough, something that goes missing can evolve from an unexplained absence into an everlasting legend. And so it is for the SS Waratah. Her lavish, expensive beauty, coupled with her tragic fate, has led to the SS Waratah being called Australia's Titanic. She was a stately, massive steamship, weighing in at over 9,000 tonnes and measuring 141 metres in length. She had eight staterooms, 100 first-class rooms, and her cargo hold could be converted to hold nearly 700 steerage passengers. She could average about 13 knots, which while somewhat underpowered compared to other ships of the time, served its purpose of making her an enjoyable ride. She was constructed in Glasgow in 1908, and she boasted a new design idea, where at the bottom of her cargo hold, there would be eight watertight compartments sectioned out in her hull that could be sealed if there was a breach and she started taking on water. This was supposed to make the liner unsinkable. And here we have that Titanic comparison again. You see, the Titanic, which was under construction in Belfast at the time of the Waratah's disappearance, was employing exactly the same principles. At the turn of the 20th century, immigration to Australia from the UK had swelled dramatically. The stigma of Australia being a land of cast-offs and misfits was fading, and now it was replaced with the one that we know more commonly these days, the image of a bright, warm land full of health and happiness. Many different ships took advantage of this rush for warmer climes, one of them being the British-based company called Blue Anchor Line, who had a fleet of 20 state-of-the-art steamliners that would provide a luxurious journey to the far side of the world. And considering that their focus was on immigration to Australia specifically, they decided to give their ships distinctly Australian names. So you have the Murrumbidgee and the Geelong, and the Warnable and the Volcania, and the company's star, its largest and most expensive liner, the SS Waratah. She had two roles, bring people from the UK to Australia and then return with cargo, most notably gold. Her first voyage was on the 5th of November 1908 and was without incident, which was to be expected considering her captain, Joshua Ilby, had 30 years of nautical experience under his belt. London to Sydney, Sydney to London. Her maiden voyage was textbook and garnered no particular interest to anyone that wasn't directly involved. So when in 1909 she set off again from London, there was no reason to expect that this journey would be anything more than routine, and for the first leg, it wasn't. 
It was the second return journey where things changed. The passenger lodgings were almost empty compared to the voyage out, with the crew outnumbering the passengers 119 to 92, but there was still a motley array of people. There were the two famous axemen from Tasmania, Alf Clark, who had won the world champion underhand cut, and his companion, Jack Calder, who stood a shocking six foot five inches tall that, while big today, was simply monstrous back then. Both are travelling to London to give demonstrations of Australian woodchopping skills at the famous Crystal Palace. Mrs Agnes Hay and her daughter were also on the boat. They were both the wife and daughter of the politician Alexandra Hay and they were suffering a significant amount of bad luck. They were going to London to recover from recently escaping a fire in their manor home in Adelaide, which had then burnt down to the ground. There were six members of the Bowden family who were travelling with and acting as the guardians of two more little girls, Leona and Dora Schulman, aged 11 and 10 respectively, who were on their way to meet their mother in London. There was Ernest Page, a travelling showman and hypnotist, Nora Connolly, a widow returning to her native Dublin with $5,000 in savings, enough to set her up for the rest of her life, and Neil Walter Black, who was planning on proposing to his intended when he got to London. Dr J.T. Carrick was a famous biologist and heading back to London with these discoveries, and then there was the Turner family, with their five children and a nursemaid. And then there was the 16-year-old cabin boy, Fred Trott, the youngest member of the crew, who was now calling the Waratah his home. No one had any reason to suspect that anything should, or even could, go wrong. The last leg of her second voyage home commenced in June 1909, departing from Sydney to Melbourne, Melbourne to Adelaide, and then on to Durban, South Africa. She departed Durban on the 26th of July, just as bad weather was beginning to set in. Now, she wasn't the only ship to brave this weather, as the storm, while bad, wasn't considered great enough or terrible enough to dock the ships just yet. On the 27th of July, she was spotted by another ship that was also heading north, a heavy cargo ship by the name of the Clan McIntyre, captained by C.G. Phillips. They exchanged a few words of greeting, using flags for communication, and the following exchange took place. Clan McIntyre. What ship is that? Waratah. Waratah, for London. Clan McIntyre, for London. What weather have you had? Strong southwest and southerly winds across. Thanks, goodbye, and pleasant voyage. And the Waratah answered, thanks. Same to you. Goodbye. That was the last confirmed communication with the Waratah. The Clan McIntyre watched the Waratah for a few more hours as the more powerful ship pushed on ahead and slowly became smaller and smaller before disappearing into the swirling mass of clouds. And it was just at that moment that Captain Phillips saw something that chilled him something the captain would not speak of until he was far away from the sea himself. Later, another ship called the Gulf was heading in the opposite direction towards Durban when she saw a ship through the whirling winds and rain. 
They attempted to signal it using lamps, but the poor visibility hampered any efforts of communication. They did, however, identify the last three letters of her name, T-A-H. Then, later that same evening, another ship battling the storm, the Harlow, saw a steamer appear from behind them, apparently working very hard against the weather and producing a significant amount of smoke, enough to make them wonder if the steamer was on fire. This ship they saw was too far away to identify or signal, and after watching it for a while, the steamer fell further and further behind until it was only a faint light. It was then that the Harlow saw two bright flashes, then the lights vanished. You would think that this would have been mysterious, but the fact is they were quite close to the coast when they saw this, and brush fires in that particular region were such a common occurrence that the captain didn't even log this event. It was only later that the captain and crew realised that what they saw might have been a significant moment. The Clan McIntyre, the last boat to communicate with the Waratah, pulled into Cape Town a few days later and immediately knew that something was wrong. The bigger, heavier, slower ship had managed to sail out of the storm, but the Waratah, the faster, sleeker passenger ship that they had communicated with just a few days earlier, had not. There was no sight of her, and there has been no confirmed sighting of the ship since. But it wasn't just the total and shocking disappearance that has cemented the SS Waratah as such an awful event. You see, there was just enough strange incidences that shifted the disappearance of the Waratah from a seafaring tragedy to something just a little bit more mysterious and a little bit more sinister. Starting with the captain of the Clan McIntyre and what he believed he saw. And here I'm going to quote Phillips himself. Some hours after I had sent the signal to the liner, I was standing on the bridge when I sighted another ship, a sailing vessel. There was something strangely old-fashioned about her rig. I'm not a superstitious man, but I know my seafaring lore. The rig of the vessel immediately brought to mind the legend of the Flying Dutchman. The phantom ship held me spellbound. It disappeared in the direction taken by the Waratah, and I had a feeling it was a sign of disaster for the liner. The Flying Dutchman, the ghost ship that sails across the oceans, apparently taking the souls of the deceased onto her decks, and every now and again attempting to communicate with the living. Is this an old superstition unwittingly brought forward by a tired old sailor? Or did Phillips actually see something? Was this a genuine ill omen of doom? Well, if it was an omen, here's the thing. It wasn't the only one, and Captain Philip wasn't alone in feeling that something horrible and unavoidable was awaiting the Waratah. Because you see, 211 people were lost. But that number was supposed to have been 212. Claude Sawyer was an engineer and a frequent passenger on a variety of steam boats, seemed to have been the only one that wasn't quite as confident in this unsinkable ship as the rest of the travellers. He had disembarked in Durban and sent his wife a message on the wire, one simple line that would have lasting consequences. Thought Waratah top heavy, landed Durban. But the thing is, it wasn't just the stability of the boat that had Claude Sawyer abandon the ship. Sawyer believed that he was being haunted by a repeating prophetic dream. 
The following is an account told to the newspaper, The Daily Observer. But again, one night at sea, he dreamt of standing on the ship's boat deck, staring into the sea. Suddenly, a knight on a horse rose out of the waves, swinging a medieval sword. A blood-stained sheet was fluttering behind him. The apparition screamed out, Waratah, Waratah, then faded. Sawyer woke up screaming in his berth. He couldn't sleep after that, but resolved to get off the ship at the next stop. Sawyer claimed that he had had this same dream three nights in a row, and during the inquest into what happened to the Waratah, Sawyer submitted this dream as an explanation for his sudden departure, right alongside his factual evidence showing that he genuinely believed the boat to be too top-heavy, unstable, and unable to properly recover from rolls. And considering the Waratah was lost in heavy seas during the storm, this fear looks to be founded. But if it was a founded fear, why did no one else feel it? Sawyer himself said that he tried many times to convince others to leave the boat, but no one thought that there was any need for concern. No one else had had bad dreams, and many people seemed to believe the boat to be unusually steady. In fact, a letter home that the Axeman Jack Calder sent from Durban seems to directly contradict this. He says, we had only one really rough day, and that was coming through the Great Australian Bight and around Cape Lewin. But the Waratah being such a grand sea boat, we did not feel much. I was never a bit seasick and feeling better than I ever did in my whole life. With kind regards to self and all Tasmanian friends, yours as before, Jack Calder. So what happened to the Waratah? Most people have accepted the theory that Claude Sawyer himself presented, that the Waratah was too top-heavy and during the storm either capsized or floundered on its side. Unfortunately, that doesn't explain the total absence of debris. A slight amendment to this theory is that the Waratah was hit by a rogue wave, massive rolling swells that are rather common off the coast of South Africa. Such a strong wave would have totally flipped the boat and would have sealed all debris inside and underneath it, leaving nothing behind. Unfortunately, the best piece of evidence for this is the fact that we don't have any evidence. Others have said that a whirlpool sucked it down, leaving nothing behind, or perhaps an explosion in the coal bunkers, given the fact that the Harlow saw so much smoke coming off it. There's even the idea that a small detonation from a mine somehow got mixed up in the coal as they were shoveling it in, and it blew up the Waratah from the inside. But the theories that have really stuck in the collective imagination has been the paranormal ones. I don't think it's because it's more plausible, just that they're more interesting. And remember, the Waratah disappeared in 1909, when spiritualism was absolutely rampant, particularly in Britain. Spiritualism is the idea that everyone has a soul which continues to exist even after the death of the physical form. But unlike organised religion that says that these souls depart somewhere beyond our reach, spiritualism believes that contact can and sometimes should be made. The claims that there had been a sighting of the Dutchman alongside Sawyer's dreams were treated as proof that the spirit world had concerned itself with the Waratah and that efforts were still being made by the deceased to make contact. 
This developed into a kind of hysteria surrounding the disappearance of the Waratah, and many clairvoyants attempted to contact the deceased, and in one extraordinary case, a seance was held by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. Funnily enough, a lot of these supposed communications with the dead all said the same thing, that the Waratah wasn't lost, but rudderless and drifting south. That there had been some fatalities during the storm, but most were well and awaiting rescue. However, this seems to have been little more than a hopeful fantasy. A massive search effort revealed nothing, and after three months, it was abandoned altogether, and the Waratah was officially declared lost. The terrible press and the lack of proper insurance on the ship led to the Blue Anchor Line going into liquidation. Their boats were mostly bought by P&O, and most of them were promptly renamed something more traditionally British. But while all official efforts to find the Waratah have ceased, people have never stopped looking. Over the century, a desperate search for answers has evolved into something more curiously like an excited treasure hunt, with the legend of the Waratah still attracting attention to this day. Because remember, she was also acting as a cargo ship, laden down with Australian gold alongside the general wealth of the passengers. Anyone who actually finds the wreck of the Waratah will not only become internationally famous for having achieved the impossible, but they will also become insanely rich. That's an incentive, if nothing else. But it doesn't look likely. The South African marine explorer, Emlyn Brown, concluded his 20-year-long search in 2004. Extremely experienced and thorough, many thought that if the Waratah had any chance of being located again, it would be by Brown. But even he was forced to admit defeat, stating, I've exhausted all options. I have no idea where to look. The SS Waratah. Was she an unlucky ship? Or did she just have an unlucky name? Perhaps the Blue Anchor Line should have done a bit more research before they christened their largest boat with the name Waratah, as that name has had a pretty bad run. If we go back nearly 50 years to the mid-1800s, that's when the first little accident happened. On the 25th of February, 1848, the Waratah, a cargo ship departing from Gravesend in London with the destination of Sydney, was wrecked off the coast of France, right near the Ile Ocente, which strangely enough was an island with a lighthouse on it, which should have been easy enough to see. 13 lives were lost. Then not one, but two ships bearing that name were lost just near Sydney in 1887. The first being in February, when a collision with a seamer sunk the newest Waratah just near Sydney Cove. It was subsequently raised and later scrapped that week. Then in June, another Waratah became grounded near North Bully. After being relentlessly hammered against the rocks and losing both its rudder and its stern posts, the newspapers reported that all hopes of saving the vessel had been abandoned. It was so difficult to get to that it was just a case of waiting for the ship to be pummeled up by the waves until it broke up into smaller pieces that could be easily taken away. And then, in 1889, another Waratah sunk as the tail end of the cyclone caught it off Cape Preston, near the Pilbara region. All hands were lost. And again, January the 20th, 1894, 
this time, the ill-named Waratah was caught up in a storm, ripped apart and lost near Rocky Island in New South Wales. It might be interesting and kind of funny to note that the Australian Navy, an institution still riddled with superstition, has never given a boat in their fleet the name Waratah, reserving that name for landbound institutions only. But for all the tragedy surrounding the Waratah, there's an exception that proves the rule. A little steam tug from 1902 still happily puts around Port Jackson to this day, operating as a tourist cruiser with the Sydney Heritage Fleet. She is the oldest working tug in Australia, still coal-powered, and I myself see her very frequently as she trapezes across the harbour, whistling at odd intervals. There is a little rumour though as to why this particular Waratah has had such remarkable longevity while six other of her namesakes have all met untimely ends. She is the only Waratah never to leave New South Welsh waters. New South Wales is the only place in the world where Waratahs grow in the wild. Because that's what a Waratah is. It's a flower, a beautiful crimson bloom that also has a series of tragic stories attached to it. Now, there isn't an indigenous monoculture in Australia, but when it comes to the Waratah, there seems to be quite a few stories about how the Waratah came to be red, and they all seem to be rather violent. In one, a single bird is killed by a hawk while trying to find its mate, turning the flower from white to red. In another, a young woman rejects a suitor, and in his anger he kills her, spraying the white flower with her blood. And another, a woman, dressed in a cloak made from wallaby skin, red ochre, and the red tail feathers from a black cockatoo, eventually changes into the flower as she waits for her dead lover to return to her. It's a small world, apparently. But that doesn't mean we still can't get lost, and it also doesn't guarantee that all those who are lost will eventually be found. And to this day, it still happens. Things, people, they can just disappear without warning, without explanation, and without any evidence as to where they went. And when that happens, when something or someone for all intents and purposes just blinks out of existence, the whole world loses that closed-in feeling and becomes unfathomably, uncomfortably, frighteningly big.